James 4, verses 13 through 16. I'll read it for us. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we'll go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you don't know what tomorrow will bring. What's your life? You're a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. And all such boasting is evil. So I have in my pocket, well now in my hands, 10 gold coins. We use these as currency in our house. Uh, They have presidents on each side of them. Madison, these are indeed from your desk, but we'll deal with that later. Um, These 10 coins, 10 presidents in order, except one of them I got out of order and there's a Zachary Taylor in here. Like that's a real president. Um, So I'm going to put these 10 coins that are now mixed up into my pocket. What are the odds that the one I draw will be George Washington? One out of 10. No, William Harrison. I'm not even sure that's one of the first 10, but anyway, that's a, there he is. Now, if this were George Washington, just pretend with me, George Washington, I put him back. Now, what are the odds that I will draw John Adams? Not one in 10. One in 100, actually. Nope, Taylor. All right, pretend that was John Adams and he goes back. Now what are the odds that I draw Thomas Jefferson? One in a thousand. No, James Monroe. And he goes back and so on. What would be the odds that I would draw all 10 in order? Anyone know the number? One in 10 billion. One in 10 billion. Second hour, I got the first two. I mean, first hour, I got the first two in order, and that made me really nervous because that, <laughs> that would have wrecked this illustration. One in 10 billion. Something as simple as choosing 10 coins from my pocket in order, one in 10 billion. Think about the kind of inconsequential things in your life that you can't control. I mean, the list is infinite. Think about the kinds of consequential things in your life that you can't control. So much of our life is wildly out of our control. We're not in control of whether or not we will go to lunch today. And how strange it is that people make plans with confidence about the future when they can't choose the right coin from their pocket. Let me give you an outline to work our way through our passage this morning. Four ways that God is glorified through you. Four ways that you can glorify God. And this is going to be what we'll hang our our thoughts on as we go through this. This passage is certainly a rebuke kind of passage. This passage James calls us together and says, uh, come now, you who say, he's, he's gathering us all together. Those of us who say the kind of things in verse 13 to rebuke us. As we gather in and he confronts us. He's going to challenge the way we we say and the way we speak and the way we plan about the future. And in the way he confronts us, so it can be very easy to go through this passage in, you know, four ways not to plan. But I want to flip it around and look at the other side of the coin, so to speak, and instead get four ways that you can glorify God. By looking at the way James rebukes us for our thinking, 
we'll see four different ways that God can be glorified through us as we talk and as we plan, as we think about the future. The first of those ways, one, God is glorified in your dependence. God is glorified in your dependence. James says, come now, you who say today or tomorrow, we'll go into such and such a town and spend a year there and make a trade and make a profit. Now, to be clear, James is not rebuking planning about the future. He's not condemning wise planning. In fact, there's all kinds of proverbs that talk about the virtue of planning for the future, the virtue of storing up for a a rainy season, so to speak, or a a drought in the Old Testament terminology. There's uh, even Jesus extols the wisdom of a, a general who counts his troops. Or a a landowner who seizes resources before he starts building. It is good, Jesus also teaches, to leverage your resources, to expand them, to invest wisely, to know market conditions, to use what wealth God has given you to leverage it, to grow it. I think there's biblical wisdom behind that. In fact, James himself in verse 15 is going to extol and champion that kind of wise planning. So he's not rebuking here strategic planning or saying don't get a college savings account because who knows. This is not some secret argument for a five-year adjustable rate mortgage instead of a 30-year fixed. (laughs) What James is saying is that when you plan about your future, remember that you're not in charge of it. Remember that you're not in control of your life. There are things in your life you can control and that list is very short. There are things in your life that you cannot control and that list is infinite. You think of the college student who, college freshman, goes off to college. He knows what school he wants to go to, what he's going to major in, and what he's going to do when he grows up. And then, you know, he's going to be an engineering major and then he takes his first calculus class and he's out. (laughs) Liberal arts, here he comes. It's very rare to find the student that actually sticks with his major when he goes to college or it's very rare to find the student that actually then gets a job in his major when he graduates. I mean, they exist like a unicorn, I guess. (laughs) It's normal. The difficulty is when you plan your life as if it weren't, as you plan your life as if you're the, actually the one who's in charge. The reality is that things you are in charge of, you're not very good at managing and you're not very good at managing long-term. You should have short-term plans. You should have long-term plans. You should be aware of what you have and how to use them in the future, but you should never plan as if your plans are definite. You should never plan as if you're the sovereign. You should never plan as if because you've planned it, it will come to pass. <laughs> We're to hold our plans with an open hand. Now it's easiest to make this point with, with kids because they're, they're cute, but then we'll extrapolate this to, to grown-ups here. But you understand how it is if you tell your kids, okay, today for lunch we're going to Chick-fil-A. And that's what you say. And you get in the car and you go to Chick-fil-A and lo and behold, they are closed on Sundays. Can you imagine? And so, okay, we're not going to Chick-fil-A. And then you hear the hue and cry from the back seat, but dad, you promised. Now, technically speaking, I didn't promise, (laughs) but I did say, but then plans change. There's more information that has come to light. There are more opportunities and more obstacles than I had anticipated, namely the closed sign on the front door. And so we hold our plans openly and, and you have to teach your kids that plans are held openly, that because daddy or mommy says something doesn't mean it's going to come to pass because daddy and mommy are A, are not God, and B, are often wrong. 
And in our households, they have the chance to learn that lesson from me many, many times. <laughs> Things change. And maybe it's not something silly like lunch. Maybe it's something like, we're going to go here. We're going to go to this, you know, we're going to go to the lake or something like that. And then as we're leaving, oh, something came up or the car is a... Uh, malfunction on it or a flat tire or something or I get a phone call to go see somebody in the hospital or a neighbor needs help or something. Things that I didn't know about at the time but I've now learned about and so now our plans have to change. And you can't have, you, you understand this as a parent, you can't have kids that have this idea that you set it so it must come to be because it makes life unlivable. It's not the kind of world we live in. Things happen outside of our control. Sometimes situations have to change. And so you have to be raising your kids in a way that helps them learn that that's, that's life. That's life. Not that your parents are misleading you, but other things happen. Okay, now extrapolate from that to the grown-up world. Where I say I'm going to go to such and such a city and buy and sell and make a profit. But guess what? I'm not in charge. God might have a different plan for me. It might be a longer time or a shorter time or it might be for a loss or it might be that I, I stay where I am. There's all kinds of things that I don't know about when I make my plan. So how foolish would it be for me to say, oh, I made my plan, but now this other information comes up or it, there's this missions opportunity or ministry opportunity or people that need help over here, but I can't do those things because I said I was gonna do something else and my word is final. I mean, it's silly. James is going to rebuke it in chapter 5. He says, don't, don't swear. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. And then submit yourself to the will of the Lord. God directs our steps differently sometimes than we expected. Man sets his course, but the Lord directs his steps. You're an arrow. You might point and shoot. You don't know which way the wind is going to blow. And things change in life. There was a week or so ago where I actually haven't even told my wife about this. I told her I would be home at 5.15 and I'm leaving right at 5.10. Lots of time. A little bit close, but lots of time. And turn around the street to come to her house and on, on Montrose, the street we live off of, there's this widow who lives in that street who is, uh, I see her there, she's got the trunk of her car open and she's trying to wrestle this big bag of white rocks out of the back of her car to which she's obviously gonna put around the base of her mailbox or something and I see her and this is not gonna go well. She does not look like she's gonna survive the extraction of the rocks from the back of the car. So this moment, what am I supposed to do? Well, stop and help, right? <laughs> I have to stop and help. Now, what if I were to say no? Because I said I would be home at 5.15. So, good luck with you. I'm going to keep going. Now, I stop and help. And then my wife understands because she's a Christian. <laughs> Actually, she, I don't think, knew, noticed that I was five minutes later than I said I was going to be. So, all was well. You have to live your life in such a way where if there are opportunities to help, you help. Even though you may have planned differently. And sometimes it's positive, like, oh, I had an opportunity to serve here or help this person with this. And sometimes it's negative, like we're going to go to lunch, but oh, the car has a flat tire. Or we're going to do this, but oh, that got canceled or that got closed. You have to hold your plans loosely because you're not in charge. One of my, well, two of my daughters love salmon, one of their favorite things to eat. I have a third daughter who despises it. 
And we make it anyway because that's how families work. And one week we get the, kitchen, the salmon out of the kitchen to cook and open it up and it just smells awful, like worse than normal salmon. And I mean, it's, it's rotten. So we, we throw it away and my daughter who doesn't like salmon does a little party dance and yes. All right, she wins this round. Next week, we're going to make salmon and we're baking it this week in this glass dish and in the oven, the dish that we have baked salmon in forever since we've been married, but now suddenly it cracks and shatters in the oven into all these little pieces and hold the fish up and I'm like, just brush the glass off, it'll be fine and (laughs) glass shards everywhere (laughs) and have to throw it away and then Savannah is doing her little salmon dance victory, yes. But then it's confession time. And she tells us, Mommy, Daddy, there's something you need to know. In the past two weeks, when I knew you were going to have salmon, I prayed that God wouldn't let us have it. (laughs) All right. So the new rule in our house is that we don't tell her when we're going to have salmon because she (laughs) pray against it. How do you hold your plans? Do you hold your plans and make your plans knowing that, <laughs> that things may change, that God may interject and may change course, may shut down, the pans may break, <laughs> things may be spoiled, opportunities may be closed and lost. Is that okay with you? Because James says a failure to live that way is foolish and is arrogance. Now, how do you glorify God by recognizing your dependence? Because you understand you are limited God made people in a limited way. Adam and Eve, they're localized. They're physically present. They only know what they've been taught. And this is true with you. You only know what you have actually been taught by somebody else. You don't come pre-programmed. So you're totally dependent on other people teaching you. You're totally dependent upon what you see for what, what your vision is, your field of vision. If you don't see it, you can't comprehend it. You can't grasp it. If you haven't been taught it, you don't know it. This is true of Adam and Eve in the garden. And they were sinless, but they were localized. They were not omniscient. They were perfect, but they weren't omnipotent. They couldn't see all things. They couldn't be everywhere. The devil is a liar, but the devil approaches them and gives them a shred of truth in what he tells them. If you eat this fruit, then you will be like God, knowing the difference between good and evil. Again, the devil is a liar, but there is a shred, a shard of truth in that. Adam and Eve didn't know. They were sinless, but they didn't have complete knowledge. They didn't know the truth about all the aspects and facets of good and evil and the power and the potency therein. And now we're fallen. Look at how limited our knowledge is. We're not like Adam and Eve in a sense that they were sinless. We are sinful. So all of our knowledge we have had to learn from others and we're filtering it through our own arrogance and our own sinful lens. So we have such a limited field of vision. What a contrast with God, who is sovereign over all things, who knows all contingencies, who has all plans. God, who never needs to make a plan B, by the way. God has perfect knowledge and he acts on it. He brings every situation to bear exactly like he wants it to come to pass. God never has to say, if this happens, I'll do A, and this happens, I'll I'll do B, and let's find out which one it is. God doesn't hold his plans loosely. God doesn't have emergency backup plans. 
God is pure light, pure knowledge, pure action. God is sovereign. And when you remember your dependence and your limited knowledge and your limited awareness, you glorify the Lord by remembering he's not like that. He's not like that. First, God is glorified in your dependence. Second, God is glorified in your transience. In your transience. This is where James goes in verse 14. You don't know what tomorrow will bring. That's your dependence. Second part of the verse. What is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little while. James is just rubbing it in right here. You're a mist that's here for a little while as opposed to that long-lasting mist. He's just rubbing it in. You're so fickle. You're so fickle. You don't know how long you'll live. You can brush your teeth and eat your vitamins and eat your carrots and work out regularly and then get hit by a drunk driver. I mean, that's the world we live in. You can't add to your life beyond what God has given to you. I mean, just think in the last decade, 10,000 people died in an earthquake in Turkey, 20,000 in a flooding in Guatemala, 50,000 in a flood in China, 30,000 from a hurricane in Central America. That's just the way the world is. And it just speaks to American arrogance. Of, you hear those kind of statistics and many Americans think, well, I'm glad I didn't choose to be born in China. <laughs> That'll keep me safe. I chose to be born in the right place. I mean, there are things you're in control of and things you're not in control of. You're not in control of what country you're born into, what culture you're born into. You're not in control of what natural disasters strike you. You're not in control of how long you live your life. It's out of your control. And the truth here that James is bringing out is even more pointed than that. You're not in control of how you live or when or how long you live or when or where you'll die. The only thing you kind of control about your death is what lessons people might learn from your death. <laughs> like don't text and drive kind of lessons. <laughs> the truth is you don't determine when you die. God does. Our life is so fickle it's not even in our hands. We're a vapor, a puff of breath on a cold morning. Remember the story that Jesus told about the rich man who said, it's going well with me, I prosper, so let me build better barns for myself. And then Jesus says, you fool. And do you remember why Jesus calls him foolish? You fool, this is Luke 12, your soul may very well be demanded of you this night. Jesus doesn't say you're foolish because you don't know you're going to die tonight. How could he know that? Jesus says you're foolish because you're not making plans in light of the fact that it is in the realm of possibility you could die tonight. Plan in light of that. Jesus isn't saying it's foolish to build big barns. It's foolish to create a savings account. He's not saying those things. He's saying it's foolish to do those things as if you're going to live forever. Instead, factor in death. Factor in eternity. The reality is our life is so short. It is here today and gone the proverbial tomorrow. And we, we don't know when. What James says here is you ought to say, if the Lord wills, I'll do this, I'll do that. What's the corollary of that? If the Lord wills, I'll do it. The corollary is if the Lord doesn't will it, I won't do it. If the Lord wills, I'll finish this sermon. If the Lord doesn't will it, I won't finish the sermon. Now, what is the most clear manifestation of the lack of the Lord's will in this passage? Your death. If the Lord wills, I'll go to lunch. If he doesn't, I won't. Namely, if I die between now and then. 
because we're not in control of that. And so James is telling you, he's echoing Jesus' words in Luke 12. You need to factor in the fact that death comes to all and you don't know when. If the Lord wills, I'll make it home. If he doesn't, I won't. Our life is so short. And we act like we're the star of it too. I mean, James isn't just arguing here against this idea of immorality, like people who act like they're going to live forever. He's arguing here against people that even recognize their life is short, but think they're the most important person on the stage. To borrow a line from Shakespeare, but he stole it from Solomon. (laughs) All the world's a stage and we're merely players. And the truth is, none of us are the stars of the show. To take the analogy out a little bit further, the world is a stage. The only star of the show is the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the only one the spotlight is on. The rest of us just have little parts here and there. We might be setting up a prop or maybe you might have a speaking line over here on the side or something like that. But then you say it and the prop is used and then you get off the stage. And people don't remember you. And nor should they. Your point was not to be remembered. You don't leave the play and go, man, that guy who put out the prop over there at the second act, that guy was awesome. No, you, you leave the play focused on the star of the play, as it should be. The best way you can serve on the, the play on the stage for your short moment on the stage is to recognize that you're not the star. The spotlight's not on you. You're not the most important person on the stage. You serve the other actors best when you're on briefly, quickly, you do your part well. You draw attention to the star and then you get off without tripping on your way out the door. (laughs) You serve those around you well by helping them see the star. I mean, you don't want to be the punk on the stage and be obnoxious to those around you. That's not a good supporting actor. You just want to get on, speak clearly about the Lord and move off. And not get caught up on how long your life is. We had a great aunt who died a couple years ago. She was 103 years old. And that's so impressive to me that you lived that long. But now gone. You can live that long and be gone and then forgotten. And you think, oh, remember that person who lived 100 years? And that was yesterday. And it's just a memory that fades. That's how Moses says it in Psalm 90 verse 4. A thousand years in your sight is but yesterday when it's passed or just a watch in the night the person who's on the third watch of the night doesn't even know who was on the first watch if nothing bad happened they don't even know about him they don't remember him God sweeps them away as with a flood Moses says or like a dream like the grass that is renewed in the morning and then withers and it flourishes for a moment and then it dies do you remember that one blade of grass you had a couple years ago that was green really brilliantly for a few minutes one morning All our days pass away under wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. So our years can be 70 years old, Moses says. Or by some feat of strength or a reason to 80. I mean, if you work out and you do everything right, you might be able to be 80 years old. Isn't that incredible? (laughs) Their span is toil and trouble and they're gone and we soon fly away. Forgotten. How do you glorify the Lord remembering this? By remembering he's not like that. God is eternal. God has no time horizon on him. 
He knows yesterday, today, and tomorrow with perfection, with complete and immediate knowledge. He doesn't have to wait for tomorrow to happen to learn something about it. They are ever before him. A thousand years in front of him, it's a day. It's a moment because he knows it so completely. We're so fickle and he is so eternal. We're so temporal and insignificant and he is so eternal and transcendent. Remembering this causes you to give glory to the Lord. How? Well, this is our third point. God's glorified in your dependence and your transience. Thirdly, God's glorified in your cognition. In your cognition. And what I mean by that, he's glorified in how you think about things. And how you get your mind around these first two truths. I mean, there's something very odd about this passage in James 5. And I hope you've noticed it before. And I've talked to many people who, who've noticed it but haven't been able to quite put their finger on it. And I want to bring it out. You read this passage and you think something doesn't just seem right here. Because the person in verse 13 and the person in verse 15 are doing the same things. Have you noticed that? The person in verse 13 says, I'm going to go to such and such a city, buy, sell, and make a profit and spend a year there. The person in verse 15, what James says you should do is say, if the Lord wills, and then you'll live and do this or that and this and that or the antecedents from verse 13. In other words, these two people are doing the same things. The person that James rebukes in verse 13 and the person that he compliments in verse 15 are acting the same way on the outside. They both move to the same city. They both do the same business. They both live there the same amount of time. They both make the same profit. But one is a fool and one is wise. What's the difference? Is it simply their speech that one person says if the Lord wills before he does it? As if James is arguing that, where are you going to lunch today? Well, if the Lord wills, we'll go here. Like it's something, a sentence you say? Eh, of course not. This is not about the words coming out of your mouth. We understand that the, the words are the overflow of the heart. If you ever spend any time in a, in a Muslim culture, you know they pepper this phrase over everything they say. Oh, I'll go here if, if Allah wills. It's, they say it all the time. Is that what James is arguing for? The Christian should speak more like that. Just say it, if the Lord wills, more often. And no, he's not. It's not the words he's after. This is what is so incredible about this passage. James is arguing about the speech that the person in verse 15 has only because you understand that speech comes from the heart. The battlefield for arrogance, listen, the battlefield for arrogance is in your head. It is in your heart. That's where this war is played. This is one of those millions of the Bible passages, it seems like, where it's arguing to you that God is not served by human hands as though he needs anything. God's not impressed with your sacrifices. He's not demanding you do things on the outside. That's not what glorifies the Lord, the things that you're doing. What glorifies the Lord is how you're thinking and how you're feeling and how you're, you're loving him and how you're submitting your life in your head and in your heart to his will and his character. That's where he's glorified. The outside looks the same for the two classes of people. They're both doing the same jobs. They're both going to the same city. They're both getting the same money. But God is glorified in the heart and in the mind of the one who is wrestling with his own dependence and who's beating his brain to comprehend his own transience. The one who's living in the light of eternity. 
The problem here is not the what. Both people are doing the same what. The problem is the why. The problem is the awareness of the beauty and the glory of God that's in one mind and is absent in the other mind. One person is living in light of eternity, the other is not. The truth is we should act, talk, plan, and live differently than other people. Because we have a different God. We're aware of our own frailties differently. Do you see here how the Lord is glorified in the broken and contrite spirit? In the humility of the Christian's heart. That's what this verse is after. Is your heart tender towards the Lord and soft and wanting to be under his will? And that's happening in your head and it's happening in your heart. I was talking to a friend of mine from church that's moving to to Florida. And just interesting, the way he was describing moving to Florida is real sweet. They said, you know, my wife and I have been praying and we feel like the Lord is leading us here and, you know, we, we found this church that we can be a part of and the Lord really led us to this one neighborhood and we have such a peace about this one. You know, they have this house they want to buy and they have such a peace about it because they're submitting this to the Lord and it's so, it's, it's so encouraging to talk to somebody like that who just in their speech has their whole life submitted to the will of the Lord. Now it's possible to say those things and not mean them. Like if the Lord wills, we'll do this and do that and just not really mean that. But that's not what was going on here. And you know the kind of person I'm talking about that when they talk about their life and their future, you're just really getting the sense from them that they are trying to seek the will of the Lord and submit their lives to it. And that's so spiritual is the word. (laughs) It's so godly. Now there's a, a wrong way to do that. Say the Lord told me to move to Florida. You know, and what are you going to do with that kind of person? You can't argue with them. You're arguing with the Lord. Like the person who says, the Lord told me to marry you. The Lord didn't tell me to say yes. <laughs> you know, you don't act on the will of the Lord just by declaring the Lord told you this or the Lord told you that. You act on the will of the Lord by really seeking out the principles of the Bible and applying them to your life through prayer, talking with your wife, and just kind of wrestling what the Bible would have you do. What God wants you to do is express through his word and how it applies to the situation and, and then what opportunities the Lord opens up in front of you in light of your desires. That's how you seek the will of the Lord. What a precious thing that is to see in someone's life. That's what James is after here. That kind of cognition that's aware of our own temporary nature. Fourth, God's glorified in your dependence, your transience, your cognition, and fourth, in your submission. In your submission. Underneath all of this attitude, probably the main point of this passage, the main point here is that the Christian heart is a submissive heart. You know, you, if, you, if you're a Christian, that means you have a love for the Lord Jesus Christ that's demonstrating yourself, itself, manifesting itself in your desire to be obedient to the commands of Christ. That's what's going on. And there's no, there's no such thing as a Christian who is rejecting the authority of Christ. Who's, you know, some people fancy themselves as independent mavericks. Nobody tells me what to do. I'm in charge of my life. 
I earned the money. I get to decide where I'm going to live and I'm going to go there and I decide what business I want to do and I'm in charge. And many of those people even come to, come to church regularly. They're faithfully part of the church, but they've never submitted their lives to the will of Christ. They're like the, the bucking bronco kind of Christian. They want to throw off any kind of authority and it's just them and they'll run free in the field. They'll run free in church. They'll run free wherever they want to run free. But putting a little cross necklace on a bucking bronco doesn't make it a Christian horse. <laughs> a broken and submissive spirit. That's the mark of a Christian. A Christian who says, I want to do, a person that says, I want to do what the Lord wants me to do. We get so wrapped up so many times in our, our life of, should I take this job or that job? Should I go to this college or that college? Your, your orders are up in D.C. soon or at the Pentagon soon. And you think, I can go to this city or that city. Which is the Lord's will for me? How do I understand? Them? And I understand the complexities of those choices and the importance of those choices. But the reality is when the Bible's talking about knowing the will of the Lord, it's not even at what college you're going to go to, what city you're going to go to, or that kind of stuff. When the Bible's talking about knowing the will of the Lord, it's usually in things that the Bible makes clear. This is the will of the Lord, your sanctification, Paul says. This is the will of the Lord, that you refrain from sexual immorality. Each of you know how to uh, control your own vessel with dignity and honor, not in passionate lust like the pagans who don't know the Lord. That's the will of the Lord. This is the will of the Lord, your speech to be sanctified, that no impure words come out of your lips. This is the will of the Lord, that you be submissive to Jesus Christ. He's willing that, that you should come to eternal life. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to eternal life. The Bible makes it very clear what the Lord's will is. Your holiness, your conformity to the image of Christ. It's so strange to get wrapped up in, you know, think of the person who's not following the Lord, who's not leading a godly life, but is so concerned about which college they go to. What if I choose the wrong college? Which college does God want me to go to? It doesn't matter if your life's not submitted to Christ. Which station should I go to next? Which Opportunity in the military, should I take next? It doesn't matter if your life's not submitted to Christ. And that's what James is really after here. Do you have an attitude that is submissive to God's will? It's not a phrase that you just sprinkle on your sentence. Like you don't fulfill James 4 by saying, I'm gonna go to lunch at Taco Bell if the Lord wills. See, I said if the Lord wills, it's Christian. He's not talking about some pharisaical reputation or repetition. It's not a formula. He's talking about a fastidious commitment to submitting your life to Christ. This is how Jesus taught us to pray, isn't it? In the Lord's Prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is why when you pray, you end your prayer with amen. You're asking God, if this is true, let it be. Let it come to pass. This is Paul in Ephesians, uh, sorry, in Acts chapter 18 when he's leaving the Ephesian elders. He cries for them and then he says, I, I will return to you if the Lord wills. I mean, that's something basic like travel arrangements and you get from, from the Apostle Paul that he's submitting his travel arrangements to what the Lord wants him to do. You know, the one person who's ever lived that you would think wouldn't need to be submissive in this kind of way would be Jesus. With the nature of, of God, omniscience, knows all things. Jesus was not limited in his knowledge. He knew all things. Omnipotence, his power was not constrained. He had complete power. 
in a human body with a human nature. Now through much of his life he didn't avail himself of his omniscience or his omnipotence. Through much of his life he chose to operate in his human nature. Learning, obedience and interacting with what he saw in front of them. But he always had the ability to, you could say it like this, he always had the ability to, to activate or to tap into his omniscience or his omnipotence. He could do that anytime. He could operate freely between both natures. And so if there was ever a person that you would say wouldn't need to be submissive to God's will, it would be Jesus because he has no limited knowledge and perfect power. Instead, one of the most common phrases he says in his life I can only do that which the Father wants me to do. He says, I have to be about the will of my Father. He says it over and over again. Perfect humility. And you see it no place more clearly than in the Garden of Gethsemane, where sin is being imputed to him, which is because he's holy God, he does not have an immediate desire for that. And so he prays that the cup would pass from him, from him, but he ends his prayer, even then, with nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Perfect power restrained with his submissive spirit. And so you really have a kind of a two ways to live scenario here. Are you going to be exalting the submissiveness of Christ by emulating it in your own heart? Or are you going to be exalting yourself as some self-styled sovereign where you're the one who's in charge of where you go and when you go there? God is glorified in your dependence, in your transience, in your cognition, and in your submission. But here's one way he's not glorified. God is not glorified in your arrogance. God's not glorified in your arrogance. Imagine yourself as an athlete, a track athlete, about to run the race of your life. Your life is a race and you're in the stadium and you're about to run the race. In this analogy though, understand that God is the one who built the stadium, who built the track. <laughs> who gave you your running shoes, who built you. <laughs> who made the starting gun and he chooses when he's going to shoot it, who makes the checker flag, he chooses when to wave it and you don't get a warning. There's no white flag on this track. How foolish it would be to be arrogant as that athlete, to boast that you're faster than the person next to you or the person behind you. Who are you? That's James's question. Who exactly are you? What in verse 14, what is your life? Who do you think you are? Verse 16, you boast in your arrogance and all such boasting is evil. Because of the power of God and our own frailty, anybody who boasts or is arrogant as if they chart the course of their life is sinful. Arrogance rises up against God's sovereignty by thinking it and self is in charge. Arrogance blinds you to the reality that God is in meticulous control of the universe by you making you think that, that you are Arrogance rejects the hand of God and claims to do a better job than he does. Arrogance blinds you to what God is doing in the world. It numbs you to the love of God expressed through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it deadens you to any kind of faith in living a dependent life on God. That's what arrogance does. And that's why James says it's evil. It closes your eyes to the ability to see reality closes your eyes to the mirror of God's word and fixates on yourself. When we say that in the gospel you need to repent from your sins, what kind of sins do you need to repent of? Here's one. Repent of the sin of arrogance. Repent of thinking you're in charge of your life, 
that you're in control of your death. Repent of thinking that you are in control. And instead, submit your life to the will of God. Run away from the sin of arrogance. Run away from arrogance because God controls your life, God controls your death, and God will judge your sin. Lord, we're thankful that you, although you're a judge, are also a savior. And we're grateful that though our lives are so fickle and that we're not in control of them, whatever strength we have comes by measure from you. We're grateful that you limit our strength to guard against our arrogance. That you humble us through our own failures, always exalting yourself. Lord, we pray that you'd be exalted in front of our eyes. I pray for this congregation. I pray that our hearts would be hearts that are submissive towards you. I pray if there's anyone here today who has never submitted their life to you, I pray that they would do that today. They would see in you a loving Savior who, though being in the nature and image of God, did not consider equality with God to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking a form of a servant. And we see as we look at you, our Savior, the a submissive servant who's willing to die because of the love he has for us. I pray that we would find our security and our safety and our significance being in Christ. And Lord, again, I pray there's anyone who's never submitted their life to you today. I pray that the beauty of Christ, the humility of Christ would draw them and that their hearts today would be submitted to you. We're grateful for your love that you have for us. Help us never be those who plan like the world. Help us be those who live a faith-filled life as we see modeled in Christ. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. You have been listening to Emmanuel with Pastor Jesse Johnson. You can find more resources like this at ibcva.com. Here is a parting word from Pastor Jesse. If you have any questions about what you heard today, or if you want to learn more about what it means to follow Christ, please visit our church website, ibcva.com. If you're not a member of a local church and you live in the Washington, D.C. area, we'd love to have you worship with us here at Emmanuel. We're located in Northern Virginia, and for more information about when and where we worship, check out our church website. I hope to personally meet you this Sunday after our service. But no matter where you live, it's our hope that everyone who uses this resource is involved in their own local church. Now may God bless you this week as you seek Jesus constantly, serve the Lord faithfully, and share the gospel boldly.